Welcome again. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Uh, we're, we're thankful that you're here checking things out and getting involved. And uh, I see the rain back there. I love this weather. So, uh, of course, Coca-Cola is far superior than Pepsi. I'm glad we established that. And a place I, I look forward to visiting is Colorado all the time. The mountains are always calling. So Maris and I are going to go camp at Dowdy Lakes uh, with the kids in a week or so. So hope you guys had a good conversation. A few announcements as we, uh, before Josh preaches is giving. You might be thinking, okay, how do I give? You know, do I give to Tallgrass Church or the well? Well, if you're involved with Tallgrass, give to Tallgrass online. If you're involved with the well, you can give to the well online. Or you can give to the black box. Yep, or the joy box. Yep, so lots of ways to give. Maybe you're thinking, hey, I'm not, I haven't been involved in either community. Um, how do I give to this new collaboration? Well, glad you asked. We actually have a Better Together Giving Fund. So uh, we're loving meeting together, and uh, things are going really, really well. So we're planning for the fall. And uh, as people are checking things out, and, and they're brand new to both communities, this is a way to give if, if, uh, if you would like to. You can go to tallgrass.church slash give, and then there's a drop-down option, Better Together Fund, or just indicate on a, on a check. So that's an awesome way to, to give. Hey, is anyone watching the Olympics yet? Opening ceremony? Team USA, we're slow to get into it. So guess what? This summer, you can go for the gold by joining a team. We have ways for you to serve alongside one another. It's, it's almost as exciting as the Olympics. So especially serving with Sprouts uh, or with our kids, that's one great way to serve. With the band, hospitality, we're looking to really build these teams as we anticipate growth in the fall and just be ready to welcome people in. So even if you're brand new, that's a great way to plug in uh, into Tallgrass at the Well. A last announcement before I pray for Pastor Josh is pizza with the pastors. This is something the well has done consistently, and, and it's something that we at Tallgrass would have liked to do, but we're always setting up and tearing down. So since there's no teardown, this is great. In two weeks, uh, any friends or f- people that you know that are interested in Tallgrass at the well, Pizza with the Pastors is for them, a chance to meet some of the pastoral leadership, ask questions about Tallgrass Church or the well or this collaboration. So if you're already firmly plugged into Tallgrass Church or the well, Sorry, this one is not for you. This is for people that are new to this thing. So you have two weeks to mention that to people that you know, that maybe they're curious, maybe they've been watching on Facebook. This is a great way for them to ask questions. So two weeks from now, Sunday, right after our worship gathering, we'll take them out to AJ's, right? So that'll be fun. Let me pray for Josh, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, hear from the Word. Lord, thanks again for the morning. Pray for Pastor Josh as he preaches and uh, keeps us going in First John, um, leading us to that tangible, visceral spirituality that's rooted in the incarnation of Christ. I pray for his words that, that you would speak to each and every person who hears my voice and hears his voice, uh, your word for them, what their next step of faith is. Um, thanks for our communities gathering, for our community that we're forming. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Hey, good morning, everyone. It's been said, I'm Pastor Josh. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Tallgrass at the Well, so it's good to have you this morning. We're continuing our series. This is the fifth week in 1 John, and uh, today I want to talk about how love is the measure. Love is the measure of, of our life. When, when we think about uh, the things that, that set us apart 
and that we're trying to grow towards and we're trying to, uh, to grasp as a part of our spiritual maturity, uh, that's my message today, is that love is the measure. It's, it's, it's the thing that when Jesus looks at our life, that's what he's looking for. How well do we love? How well are we becoming love to those who we're in the midst of, where God has placed us? And so as I, I was actually looking at the context of the, the, the letter readers, the recipients of this letter in, in the early uh, first century context, it reminded me of a story in the Old Testament, actually. So if you're familiar, maybe you grew up in church and you've heard uh, the, the name Elisha, the prophet. Elisha is one of the, one of the people that, that hears God for the nation of Israel. And something interesting happens in his life where he's very tuned in to God's voice and, and God is leading and guiding and, and directing the nation through his instructions, through the instructions that God gives him and then he gives to the king of Israel. And so at one point in time, there, Israel's at war with one of her neighbors and the, the enemy king is trying to set up and sabotage and, and, and win that war, win that ba- those different battles. Uh, but the thing is when they set up for an ambush or for a strike, God whispers to Elisha what the enemy army is going to do, and Elisha tells the king. And so the enemy king is really frustrated because he's like, okay, which one of you is a traitor? And, and they're like, no, 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 there's this dude named Elisha, and he hears God, and he tells the, the king everything that you even think of in your inner bedroom, uh, the king of Israel already knows. And so the enemy king sets up a bounty and sends out his men to go and, and kill Elisha. And so one morning, uh, Elisha and, and his servant are in this city, camped up. Uh, it's in secret, it's in private, but the, the, the servant gets up and you know, goes to like make the avocado toast for breakfast or whatever. And, and he, he looks up and there's an, the enemy army all around them. And he, he turns to Elisha and he goes, I don't think we're getting out of this one. Like, where was, where was God in this, right? Like, you know everything. Why didn't you see this coming? And Elisha, you know, he's rubbing, he hasn't had his cold brew yet. So he's like rubbing the coffee, the, the, the sleep out of his eye. And he goes, no, 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 you don't understand. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And, you know, you can imagine, like, the servant is just frozen in fear. He's like, okay, so I was scared at first because of the army that I do see. Now I'm really freaked out because you're telling me there are more people, there are more things, there are more stuff happening that I'm not even aware of that I can't even see. And Elisha prays for him for his eyesight to be opened. And so God, like, lifts this veil between the natural and the supernatural, and he sees that the hills are covered in an angelic army, like chariots of fire, chariots and horses just inflamed in the glory of heaven. And so he's, he's just really freaked out, as you would imagine at this point. And it reminded me, the story reminded me of how much fear can influence our thought life and really influence our behavior towards one another. If there is an enemy of love, it's not as much hate. It's, it's as much the thing sitting behind the hate. It's fear. We fear what we can't see, what we can't control, what we don't understand. We fear things that are out of our control. For the servant, uh, it, it, was, it was the enemy army, and then it was the angelic army. And yet, for Elisha, he, he felt in control. He, God was whispering to him what was going on, the strategic plans of the enemy. He knew that the enemy host was greater than any problem he would face in the natural. Fear influences us. It influences our decision-making. It influences even our relational connection to other people. 
I remember uh, years ago when we were on sabbatical going to uh, Yellowstone National Park. And if you've never been there, it's more majestic than, than any picture, any story could really capture. But I remember, um, so we're driving in our car when we first get there. And uh, when, when there's like wildlife that comes near the road, because they've got just roads that go intertwine and go, go all throughout. When there's wildlife, there's like congestion. And so we pulled into this, onto this road and there's a lot of congestion because as we, I look out the driver's side window, there's, there's this buffalo just kind of lumbering down on the, the, like he's not following the rules of traffic. He's, he's heading into oncoming traffic on the shoulder of the road and people are slowed down to take pictures. And it was this really just, you know, having grown up in Kansas, but I'm a city boy, I've never been that close to something so big and majestic and powerful, but it was a photo op for us. We were taking pictures and video and it was cool. And just kind of like, you want to reach out and like, like put your hand in its fur or mane or whatever it's got, right? And just kind of pet it. And it's, it's kind of this fun experience. Well, Fast forward a couple days, and we're out by one of the ponds that are out there. And so on one side of the road is this big pond that my family is just kind of like enjoying, splashing around in. And on the, on the other side are these rolling hills and meadows, and, and there's this little path. So I, I just kind of duck out and, and do just some, some alone time because, you know, being in the car with the kids for 20 hours straight just makes you do that. And so I'm out on this kind of just winding path, and it's, I'm just having this moment with God and his creation. It's amazing. And then I look up, and, and 200 yards away is a buffalo. There, I think there's like three of them. Now, the thing is, there's a difference when you're in your car, and there's a buffalo, and there's a photo op, versus when there's one with no fence, or no car door, and no window, or no nothing between you. And I just have to say that buffalo ruined my moment with God because as soon as, as soon as I realized that they were there and yet they were far away, I'm not fast at all because I don't know what the top speed of a buffalo is. Someone Google that if you really want to, but I can assure you it's probably faster than me. And so at, at that point, I just became fixated on at all times knowing where this little mini family herd of buffalo are as I'm walking, you know, I'm walking this way and at the corner of my eye is the buffalo and I, this way is the buffalo. And it just ruins it because I'm fixated not on my moment with God and not on the distance that's there, but what could happen, what might happen. And if I have to like figure out my new top speed running, you know, screaming probably uh, away from a buffalo. That's what fear does to us. It causes us to fixate. It dumps all these neurochemicals into our brain and it, it makes the emergency uh, scream at us that, that it's big and it's real and needs to be taken care of right now. Dr. Carolyn Leaf, who is a, a neuroscientist and she's also a Christian, in an article that came out during the pandemic called How to Manage Fear, Anxiety, and Panic During a Pandemic says this, toxic, fearful thinking shifts our bodies into toxic stress. How many of us are like, yeah, I know that. I've experienced that. That's what my last 18 months has, has really been about day after day. Which can cause the blood vessels around the heart to constrict. And this means that there will be less blood flow and oxygen to the brain. And 1,400 neurophysiological responses can work against us instead of for us. Indeed, toxic fear-based thinking can lead to a nocebo effect, which is the opposite of a placebo effect. Fearing something may just make it come true. So some of these responses that Dr. Leaf refers to uh, includes this, when the prefrontal cortex becomes overstimulated, 
We can experience a drop in rational function, so we're more likely to base judgments on the feelings of fear and anxiety more than logic and reason. The amygdala region kicks into high gear, meaning we overreact, overgeneralize, and even uh, catastrophize affect situations. This often leads to miscalculations and greater feelings of fear. So there's this, this feedback loop that keeps going in our brain based on what we're fixated on uh, out of fear. And there can be neurological disconnection due to this overactivity where the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex fail to regulate each other, so our perceptions of reality continue to be skewed. This results in a continued inability to reason and deal with emotions, resulting in dampening decision-making capabilities. Now... Think about how fear, real or perceived, can wreak havoc in the middle of our relationships. That's, that's me and a buffalo having a moment, a non-moment, thankfully. But imagine, like for a minute, what does fear do when it's let loose in the midst of relational connections? Fear causes division because it looks for an enemy. When, when those uh, neurochemicals are dumped, the, the flight fight or freeze responses kick in to how we're going to react towards that. And it's looking, it's hyperactive, hypervigilant to finding an enemy to fixate on. And that can be true in our relationships as well. It looks for a them, for us to be against. Fear causes us to isolate and to build up walls. Fear fuels outrage. Fear doesn't listen. Fear thinks it's always right. Don't raise your hand if you've ever experienced that in a relationship. Now, John is shepherding a congregation that is fueled by fear in the midst of relational strife and disconnection. Relationships have been torn apart due to false teachers who are claiming spiritual and divine authority for new doctrine. They don't know who's in, who's out, who they can trust, who they, whose voice and teaching they need to follow. It's havoc. It's pandemonium in the midst of that congregation as John is trying to lead them and shepherd them and point them to Jesus. Now, John knows if this continues, if if fear really grabs hold and takes root in the community, it's only a matter of time before the community actually turns inward on itself and starts to fight each other. This is what fears does. When it can't find an enemy out there, it will find an enemy within, within the same family, within the same church, within the same household, within the same neighborhood, and so on. So John is a good shepherd, and he knows. We have to disrupt the system and and the, the toxic feedback loop of fear. And we have to fight with, with an old weapon, an ancient weapon, the message that's been passed down, the message that he learned from his master. That weapon is love. Love disrupts fear. Love breaks the toxic feedback loop. Love breaks up the system. I, I imagine John is this, he's like this 90-year-old wrinkled guy. He, he's known as John the Beloved, the apostle of love. And you can just imagine as you're reading 1 John, if you've been following along, I get this picture of like John in this like rocking chair as this grandpa, maybe this great grandpa. And, he, and people are just bringing problems to him. John, our life is falling apart. John, what we, should we do? John, you knew Jesus, like solved this for us. And he just, he's just relaxed in God's love. Beloved, just love one another. Beloved, love breaks up 
the fallow ground. Beloved, love disrupts fear. Love fights against hatred. I just, I just picture him, like his solution. Now, this is not a Sunday school answer. This is not an easy thing to do. It's no, it's no quick fix. But if we can learn to love each other, love really is the solution. And, and not only solution, love is the measure of maturity. How much will we love those we disagree with? How much will we love those who we have created an us versus them uh, dichotomy? How much will we choose to love when we're misunderstood, when we're hated, when people walk away, when people break up with us, when they just are disloyal or, or, or they just break fellowship with us? Will we learn to love in the midst of that? And so in 1 John verse 11, here's what he said. This is the message that you heard from the beginning. It's the message I've been carrying, he says, because I learned it from my master Jesus, and I've given it to you as faithfully as I could give it to you. This is the message from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So verse 11, as we read this letter of chapter 3, is a turning point in the entire letter. It is uh, the first half is where John has been talking about the difference between those who walk in light and those who walk in darkness. He's focused on, on the gospel and, 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 and representing what Jesus did and, and making that practical to us. And in verse 11, he turns to the practical outworking of those who are following Jesus, those who are becoming and have embraced love as their ethic. And so he's addressing not just his hearers, but also us as we walk out the way of Jesus. So Cain and Abel weren't a myth with a lesson for them. It wasn't like an Aesop's fables or anything like that. It was a real historical event about brothers against each other. Uh, One brought a, a religious love offering and the other became jealous because his was not accepted. And and one murdered the other. And that, that to them embodied this, uh, and to John, really embodied this way of life and the way of love, to love each other versus uh, 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 the brother who actually gave himself over to, not just evil, but John says to the evil one. The evil one was behind that kind of jealousy and that kind of hatred and that kind of root of fear. And so we don't want to be like that. We want to be uh, 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 those who walk in the way of love. Um, We're then not surprised also when this happens. John wants them to understand, hey, you know that there are those in the world that will hate you. You can do everything right, just like Jesus, and people will still dislike you. Now, this pushes back against this kind of American prosperity gospel. We might not go to a, a name it and claim it church, but there's this there's this interweaving of thought that God always wants us to be happy. And that if, therefore, if we pray a prayer and give our lives to Jesus, then he's going to work everything out so there's no more pain and no more suffering in our lives. And John goes, you understand that Jesus was righteous 
and sinless, and he did everything right, and people still hated him. And if they hated him, they're probably going to hate you. They're probably going to dislike some things that you do right. You could go to church every Sunday and live an ethic of love, and people still be jealous of you and push back against you and and dislike you for no reason, where you go home from work and go, "I, I did everything my boss told me to do, and she still doesn't like me. What's up with that? And John says, don't be surprised by that. That is the way of the evil one, which is the way of the world. We live in the midst of that, shining light in the dark places that God has placed us. We extend grace when there's no, none coming our way. We bless when we're cursed, because it's only in being love in those circumstances that can ever break the cycle of the evil one. When we hate either with our words or our actions. When we fight fire with fire, we draw a line between us and them, and we actually cut them off from the life-giving grace of Jesus. If we hate people, if we make an enemy out of people, we're basically saying, you, I can turn you over to Satan. I don't need to share the gospel with you. you. You are on your own to find your way, and you may be the one that God has placed in their life to share grace, to share truth, to share love. So if you remember, it's Jesus who sets this new kingdom ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, if you, you've heard it said, don't murder. But he's like, yeah, good job. That's not hard to do. Just don't kill people, right? But I tell you the truth. If you're angry with your brother or sister, if you, if you condemn them and dismiss them, that's, that's, just a, that's, that's a sin too. You're not off the hook. So thinking further about this tenacity of love, John won't allow us to view love as a sentimental memory or an emotion we can dip into when times are good. Both of those are powerful. I I love my cherished memories I shared about Yellowstone. It was amazing. I want to love my my wife, not just like on our anniversary or in like, yeah, I love her because we're married. Like I I love the emotion of love that, that my wife and I share, my kids share. Like that's good. Those are powerful, but it's not enough to sustain the way of life that Jesus has for us. He has something much more powerful in store for his flock. The self-giving, action-oriented love embodied in the example of Jesus. He says this in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. If there's any guesswork, this clears it up. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So when John uses Jesus as an example of what love looks like, he does so for two reasons. First is that Jesus' death is a revelation to us of God's effort on our behalf. Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus exerted effort to come and, and to give his life, to lay it down, to be a sacrifice in our place so we can be reconciled to God. His love motivated him to bridge the gap between God and humanity because we were never going to be able to do it on our own. It, 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 it was outside of the realm of effort that we could ever exert to be sinless and perfect and be an offering to God. So Jesus came in our, in our place. Love moved Jesus to preach and to heal and to deliver and empower. Love propelled him to undergo tremendous misunderstanding. Don't, don't miss this. The, 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 the cross is amazing and ultimate, 
But don't miss the the way of life that Jesus lived. His love propelled him to endure misunderstanding by his friends, mistreatment, being outcast even by his family. Love made him endure all of those things, all the day-to-day things that that you and that I endure. Jesus did that, that too as a model for us of what love looks like. And love helped him endure as as he was unfairly tried, as he was beaten, and as he was put to death. Second, Jesus is a model for us to emulate. Gary Burge in his commentary on 1 John says that the phrase laid down his life, is uh, that the way that's structured suggests that the meaning divesting oneself of something that is precious and personally valued. Jesus possessed all the resources of heaven. All of the kingdom resources were at his, all the power, all the privilege, he had it all. And he was willing to set all of that aside to embrace our, our humanity to come. And so the amount of power, wealth, glory, prestige that God possesses, it's, it's incomprehensible. And Jesus set it aside to give of himself voluntarily for others and to invite us to share in his glory and sharing in his glory also is that invitation of setting aside that which is precious and personal and meaningful to us so that we could become love in the midst of the place that he has set us so this helps us again to know exactly what does love look like yes it can be an emotion yes it can be a memory but more so it's self-sacrificial, self-giving. It's radical generosity on behalf of the other. We should be uh, the most well-taken care of people as Christians to know that there's a family there that you can call on 3 a.m. when when crisis is hitting your house, to know that you have fridge rights because your brothers and sisters of a higher magnitude than, than any physical relationship that you have on this earth. We should be the most peaceable people because we know we have a community of love that is always welcoming, always understanding. We know the church doesn't do this perfectly. But how much peace, how much, how much joy does it release knowing that we have people who get us, who get what we're trying to do is we walk out the faithfulness of God in our own lives. But love that is all talk, that fails to follow through with true practical action is nothing more than religious rhetoric. Bob Goff in his book, Everybody Always, and he's, I mean, if there's an author, speaker alive that represents like the Apostle John to me. I don't know if you guys know who Bob Goff is, but he's this lawyer that has his office hours at Disneyland. He's like the most joy-soaked person that I know. So he says this in his, in his book, love isn't something we fall into. Love is someone we become. God wants me to love the ones I don't understand, to get to know their names, to invite them to do things with me, to go and find the ones everyone has shunned and turned away, to see them as my neighbors, even if we are in totally different places. You'll be able to spot people who are becoming love because they want to build kingdoms, not castles. They fill their lives with people who don't look like them or act like them or even believe the same things as them. They treat them with love and respect and are more eager to learn from them than presume they have something to teach. So at this point in John's letter, and I think some of us can relate to this, we're thinking, oh no, I don't do this at all. (laughs) I'm terrible. If, if, if 
if loving people is really about becoming love in the midst of them, like, okay, what does that mean if I'm like not good and I'm not known for this? And what kind of eternal repercussions does this really have? And so you can, you can actually open yourself up to more fear by, by questioning your, your salvation and your connection to Jesus and thinking, I, I don't know if I have what it takes to measure love in my life. And so John, again, knowing that he's a good shepherd, writing to his congregation that's full of fear, now then writes to them that they could have assurance. Uh, Pastor Dave talked about that last week quite a bit. Uh, how I like to think of assurance of our salvation is confidence. Being confident in God's love. Not being confident in your own ability or what you are measuring. Because we have the tendency in our spiritual journey to measure the things that we're good at. It's like if I excel at you know, giving or memorizing scripture, or I have perfect church attendance, or I serve on every team and every open spot, I, I measure the things that I'm good at. Right, And all those things are really good things. There's nothing wrong, and all those things are things that we want to be good at and grow in. And yet, is that really what Jesus measures when he measures spiritual maturity? Is there something more? And John would say he measures love. And the measurement of true maturity is being confident that you're loved by God. He says this, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. If we have an oh no moment, oh no, I'm not good enough. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So to rest in God's presence should be a familiar concept for those of us that have been connected to the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course. Uh, it's another way that Pete Scazzaro talks about this contemplative practice of relaxing in Jesus. To be assured of God's work through Jesus and to rest and all that he has accomplished. To, to look at what he has done and go, that's the most relaxing thing that I could think of right now. Like, to know that Jesus has accomplished everything on my, my behalf. My responsibility is my yes. To just say, yes, Jesus, in this moment, I give my heart to you. I'm just relaxed. I mean, this goes way beyond like the, the kind of like, you know, California beach hippie that's just relaxed about everything because there's probably another substance in the, in the conversation. Like this goes way beyond that to, to be able to relax in God's presence because you don't have to perform. He knows everything. John says he knows everything that you've done, everything you will do. He knows all of your thought life, every Google search. He knows that. And he's provided a way for you to relax in him and not let that be a major bummer. It's in Jesus that we can relax in his presence and just know I'm becoming love as I say yes to God more and more. That's it. That's our responsibility. Our assurance is grounded in God and in him alone. Our circumstances may crumble. Our friends may abandon us, may accuse us. Our hearts may even betray us. But humbly and earnestly saying yes to Jesus is all that love requires to receive confidence that we belong to God, 
that he is with us, that he is for us. We, you can have confidence in God in this. This is not a false humility to say, I am loved by God, I'm cherished by God. God is wild about me. Jesus died for all of us as if there would only be one of us. He, he loves us each individually as his family, as his children, at Jesus, as uh, us as brothers and sisters to him. That leads to confidence, assurance that we belong to him. And we don't focus on all the ways that, that, that we don't measure up. We don't focus, like we, we can, you know, like I, I focus on, uh, we, were, we were talking about our kids and how, um, what was the context? It was something about maybe basketball or sports or something. I don't know. No, I don't know what it was. Sorry. I'm just having a moment here of parenting. It all blends together. Uh, our, one of our kids had a growth spurt, so like none of their jeans that fit last week fit anymore. And it's like, dude, like I love the getting tall, but could you not do it all at once? Like, like come on. Um, obviously, they have no control over that. So I, I take note of measurements, but I don't focus on how tall or short my kids are. What they are aren't. I just take notice of that's the measure in the moment, right? So we can, we can be aware of ways that we need to improve and say yes to God in greater faithfulness. But I am not, I'm not focused so much on where I lack. I am so totally focused on what Jesus has done. And it gets my eyes off of me and it gets my eyes focused on Jesus. And that's what brings confidence and rest. Confidence comes from knowing that we're welcomed and we've been given access, especially when all the anxieties of life knock on our door. Tim Keller says this, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that access. We have that kind of access to Father God around the clock. Father God, are you paying attention? And his answer is always yes. Confidence in God's love that he's always for me, always with me, creates a stability that brings true spiritual maturity. When we're mature in love, it grounds us. When there are fad theologies that blow through, things come and go, we continue on in God's love, knowing that as long as we're keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, That's how we continue to grow. This kind of maturity looks at fear and says, you will not control me. You do not have the last word in my life. And in this way, our maturity is measured in how relaxed we are in God's love and how we manifest that to those around us. Maturity, like I said, isn't about how much scripture you have memorized. If you have a lot, that's great. If you have a little, that's okay too. How much or how little you give, how much or how little you do, how much or little whatever. Our maturity is measured on, are we becoming love based on our confidence that we're already loved? So one way that we can apply this to our lives is just kind of give some kind of moral pep talk. Like, like, hey, Matthias, just go love your neighbor more, buddy. Okay, you're going to do that tomorrow? Good. Okay, we're becoming love. Like, I think there's a, there's a good dimension to that, isn't there? Where we can feel good about that. But hey, I want to challenge us to next level love. Can we do that? Because I'm telling you, I think most of us get that talk of like, you know, my physical neighbor, I need to go love them like Jesus would love them. And at this point, you're either doing that or you're not. And I'm not sure one talk is like going to budge you out you know, towards that anymore. But if I could just focus our eyes up maybe a little bit higher, Because 
The question for us, I think we need to wrestle with, is that how does a community of faith not just love our neighbor, but how do we collectively love the neighborhoods that God has placed us in? From Wamigo to Junction City and the surrounding areas of Manhattan, how do we love well the neighbors that are collectively here? In other words, let me, let me give you another way to think of this. What do you think the top three needs are in our area? If you could say, if you could just, there, I don't know that there's no, any wrong answers. There might be more statistically supportive. But if you could just guess in your mind, what are the top three challenges that our cities face? And how would God have us step in to those challenges and be love? You might say, because there's a lot of challenges, there's a lot of large problems requiring creative imagination and kingdom resources to address them. There might be some who say food and shelter insecurity. We know there are houseless people. There there are people who are relying on the the charity of churches to, to give them a meal. That's a real problem. And we have some ability to step into that. It could be the childhood education It could be some things connected to the school system here in the area that we could actually come alongside teachers and administrators and actually support them and help them. It could be things like addiction. It could be divorce. It could be like the intersection of digital citizenry and loneliness, the epidemic of loneliness in our country. We could say, hey, we actually feel like there's some things that God has given us to do to step into that. It could be any of those things. It could be a host of other things. I believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And I also believe the gospel is the power that sets free the addict, that heals relational strife. I believe everything is solvable in the name of Jesus because he's given the world a church with hands and feet that can get involved in real practical solutions. The gospel is powerful enough to do all of that. That's a good time to say amen. Amen. Okay. I believe the gospel, let me back up. I think there are people actually wondering what does the church have that I need? And if all we have to give them is pray this prayer and go to heaven one day when you die, that's an anemic gospel. The gospel transforms. When his church becomes love with our actual voices and hands and feet and all of the consequential practical examples that you could even imagine, that is the gospel unleashed in an area. And I believe our gospel, the gospel of our God is big enough to do that. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, on the one hand, we're called to play the good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. To love our neighbors well means that we not only help each other in the moment where we find people, but also we look at the bigger context. We look at our neighborhoods and not just our neighbors. 
We look at our neighborhoods and ask, in the situation in which they find themselves, how is it that we can approach God, our Father, and the creator of the universe, and say, Father God, what's your solution for this problem? The way to win people's hearts isn't through lobbying well-reasoned arguments. If we actually want like, to serve our ones well, yes, we will meet the immediate need. But the way to win them and to win their hearts for the kingdom isn't lobbying arguments or rage tweeting at them or at any problem. It's actually putting where our, our time and our money and our resources where our gospel is, where our mouth is and getting involved in everyday practical stuff of life. So at this point, you, you may say, but wait, wait, wait. Okay, you had me at first, John, and you lost me at this bigger, like what is love in our neighborhoods? And I get that. The question could be, what if I love and I get taken advantage of? Like, what if I give sacrificially and I'm generous and people take advantage of me? Beloved, that is just the way of Jesus. Like, here's the thing. Love still has boundaries. We're not talking about anybody just pouring out of themselves and, you know, risking, like, you know, emptying your college, your kid's college fund to, like, love people. Like, love has boundaries. You understand that, right? So we don't, we don't shut our brains off to love people. We follow the voice of the Spirit. And sometimes it's hard conversations, but oftentimes it's acts of generosity that go first, that pave a way, that open up the heart to people. Love centers the other person and says, you're the most important person right now in my life, and how can I be love to you? How can I be the answer to your prayer in the grace of God in this moment, in this space that we have now? So you may, you may ask, how far do I have to go to keep loving people? Love people that are messy and broken. They don't dress like me. They don't vote like me. They don't read the same blogs or books or whatever is me. I'm on Instagram. They're on Facebook. There's a whole communication difference. I don't even know what to do. And I think in, what I would say is that in the way of Jesus, if you still have life left, you still have love to give. Because that is the way of sacrifice and generosity that Jesus has revealed to us and modeled for us and invited us into so that there is grace to empower that. I mean, what would it be like for Tallgrass at the Well to be known for our love? I mean, that sounds really simple. That sounds really like, can we get a bigger challenge? Beloved, I don't know that there's a bigger challenge than to be known in our city as the church that loves well because it's costly it's inconvenient, but oh, I will tell you, the treasure in heaven and the gladness of God on the heart in, in these moments is just incomprehensible for us. So that's what I want to call us to, is to become love wherever God has you. Worship team, why don't you come on up? And why don't you stand with me as we, as we just ponder. I'm going to leave you with this question as our next step. What would it look like to be a community known for its love and... In what ways is God's spirit prompting you to become love in the place he has placed you, to those he has placed around you? This could be at your work. It could be becoming love to those that don't fully understand or maybe had a bad experience with church or didn't grow up in church. It could be the way that you actually entreat your employees at your workplace. It could be a neighbor that you have an act of generosity, an act of kindness to get involved 
in their life, maybe help them mow their lawn, trim their trees, whatever that practical need is, but also how can we become love in the bigger picture, that Jericho Road system of brokenness that's active in our our area. So why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray. So Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and and we, we just relax, we just rest in your love in this moment. This is not a performative thing. This is not something we have to do to earn your favor. And so God, I ask that you would release a generous amount of grace on us in this moment as we're entering back into to worship and singing. For those online, I invite you to, to get this posture, take a posture of, of engagement this way too. And God, would you release grace and, and wisdom to know how to become love in the midst of the place that you have set us, at, at home, at work, uh, the places that we hang out, the places that we frequent, God. Release love through us in those places. And, and for, for those of us that are maybe struggling knowing that we're loved, having that, that confidence that we're loved, God. I ask even this week that you would break something loose in our hearts and you would release a greater measure of love into us, God. Help us know that we're, we're your son, we're your daughter, and that you have your favor set upon us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.